Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Williamson. We're really happy to have you here and we're happy to have you as a featured panelist on our upcoming panel on topics of medical racism and health misinformation uh, during COVID-19. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be able to join you all. So your research focuses on how lived experiences within the medical sphere interact with health communication to influence and perpetuate racial health disparities. Can you tell me about how you first got interested in this area of research and how it's been influenced by COVID-19? Sure. Um, so I think I first became interested, um, I mean, I guess it's sort of twofold. One is pre-grad school. So between um, undergrad and going back to graduate school, I was a research um, assistant. I was hired to work with a team out of Duke University looking at medical decision making. Um, and I was really interested in conversations that were occurring between men being given prostate cancer diagnoses um, and urologists, the physicians who were sort of giving them their diagnosis. And I noticed that in a couple of those interactions, you had Black men bringing up that they had heard that they were at higher risk, um, that they thought that as Black men, um, their outcomes um, would look differently in raising that in appointments. And so that was sort of the beginnings of like, wait, what sort of happens when patients think about these things or bring these things into appointments and how do physicians respond? Um, and so like generally that was my sort of first introduction. And then as part of my graduate school training, um, I got an opportunity to conduct focus groups um, in Chicago with um, African-Americans about their perceptions around organ donation. Um, and I realized that the ways in which they were discussing medical mistrust, A, how much of medical mistrust was taking up um, those conversations, but the ways in which they were talking about it seemed a little different than what I was seeing in the literature. And so that sort of took me down this pathway that now thinks about racial experiences and medical mistrust and what that means for health outcomes. And in terms of COVID-19, there's been a lot of conversations surrounding higher rates of vaccine hesitancy among Black Americans, but it seems to me at least that less people are looking into the deeper historical roots to this mistrust, kind of the antecedents to, these, to this mistrust. Um, I was wondering if you could give us an overview of where this mistrust stems from and how medical mistreatment has sort of forced marginalized communities to question the credibility of the medical sphere as a whole. Sure. Um, so you're not wrong in that um, I think oftentimes in discussions about medical mistrust, the historical and the present day issues and the ways in which things that are tied to structural racism, to white supremacy, the ways in which those things um, impact medical mistrust. Um, you'll often hear um, the U.S. Public Health Service's um, study on syphilis that occurred in Tuskegee. You'll often hear it as the Tuskegee syphilis study. Um, that often gets brought up as here is why communities of color and particularly Black communities um, are mistrustful. Um, but I think that we can inadvertently do some harm when we sort of flag Tuskegee and uphold it as this is why communities are mistrustful. Tuskegee, I think, is a stand-in and it's one of the salient examples and is what people often think of, but it's really a stand-in for negative healthcare experiences and for racial discrimination experiences and things that occur at that 
intersection. So, you know, J. Marion Sims for a really long time was sort of held um, up as the father of gynecology, but the things he did to sort of get what we think of as um, gynecological practices, those things were performed on unanesthetized enslaved women. Um, and so it's really, we've seen a history of things across communities. You've got things like Tuskegee, you have the experimentation that happened with enslaved black people in this country. You have the histories of forced sterilizations among Latinx women, um, indigenous women. And so they're all, they're historical roots in all communities sometimes. Um, that intersect, but particularly for communities of color and particularly Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities, you have these things rooted historically. And then when we think about present day issues, we still see issues of racism. Um, there have been stories of, you know, a Black patient walking outside of hospital in Chicago and being accosted and sort of accused of like trying to steal medical equipment when he was a patient and was just outside going for a walk, um, they're all of the things, um, there's a reason that communities are mistrustful and it, you know, there's hesitancy in even going to seek medical care for some communities, whether that be concerns about immigration officials being called, um, about putting immigration status at risk. Um, there are things that, yes, historically have happened, but continue to happen today um, that I think we often aren't willing to address fully that are contributing to issues of mistrust. So one of your most recent studies looks at how different types of news content uh, affect reported levels of medical mistrust among Black adults. I was wondering if you could explain the study in more detail and what the findings might mean for health communication scholars. Sure. So I have been really interested in what happens um, because you know, our perceptions of health and our attitudes towards health and health behaviors aren't solely rooted in our own experiences. We talk to people, we read news stories. Um, and so the latest study looked at um, content that was particularly related to issues of access in regards to health um, and then whether or not there was racial discrimination. So I varied um, each of those. So you had stories where there was health-related racial discrimination happening, a story that was sort of a negative health-related story but didn't have the racism element, stories that just had the racism element, and then stories that didn't have either um, this health element or racism. Um, and so I looked at both general and race-based or group-based um, medical mistrust because there can be a different, I can be um, mistrustful generally, and that's a little different than feeling like I should be mistrustful because I belong to a particular group, that because my racial ethnic group is more likely to be, you know, subjected to some of these experiences, there could, there could have been differences. Um, and so I wanted to sort of look at those relationships. And what I found was, I think what happens is that particularly in all of these, this was very explicit. These were sort of explicit mentions of racial discrimination, for instance. Um, and so it appears that in particular, health-related racial discrimination stories result in increased medical mistrust 
at least in comparison to stories that don't have either types of content. Um, and so that coupled with some of my um, other experimental work where we looked at um, just racial discrimination, but looked at whether or not the stories explicitly discussed racial discrimination or whether it was implicit. And in this case, implicit would have been a geographic um, location that is sort of racialized or thought to have um, a high proportion of Black residents and then using a class cue, which is um, sort of consistent with how that's been manipulated in the literature. Um, and it seemed like what was happening was in that case, implicit, so not directly mentioning racial discrimination, resulted in higher levels of medical of medical mistrust than just outright saying that race was at play. So when you have this sort of hidden nature triggering medical mistrust, and then you have health-related racial discrimination when it's explicit triggering medical mistrust, it seems like if it's health-related and it's racism that unsurprisingly is related to medical mistrust. It's in it's racial discrimination in a particular realm. Um, and it seems like for at least the samples of Black Americans that have participated in my stories that the baseline is sort of the expectation is that racism exists. And so there has to be something that moves it outside of that to trigger medical mistrust. So if it's health related, it sort of triggers it into this could happen in this specific way and is you know, relevant for the context of medical mistrust. Um, or if race is being hidden, even if it's not related to health specifically, that the sort of covering or the unwillingness to um, address race is a signal of here are systems that once again are sort of um, not meant for people like me or are um, don't have my best interests at heart, and then that can trigger medical mistrust as another realm in which it's known that this happens. And so for me, A, it goes back to this is a issue of systems. I think sometimes we often like to think of medical mistrust, and occasionally you'll see medical mistrust described as, oh, we have to fix the um, erroneous beliefs that these communities have when really it's an echo of communities recognizing what has happened, what they know can happen. Um, and so, you know, responding to it being hidden, um, knowing that it could happen in these specific cases. And so for me, I think it's really important to be willing to admit and acknowledge why communities are mistrustful um, and not make it seem as though it has no basis in fact, or it's purely some um, emotional response. Um, so being willing to discuss it and being upfront um, and being upfront about the ways in which we are trying to build trust with communities, I think could go a long way. So sort of along the lines of the framing of these messages and how that contributes to mistrust, like you were talking about, how do you feel about the way major news outlets have covered the COVID-19 pandemic in relation to its effect on medical mistrust? Have you seen them covering mistrust at all? Or like you said, just kind of being like, this is an issue that we need to address without looking deeper. Um, I think I've seen it more generally. There have been a few 
um, reports, not necessarily from major mainstream outlets all the time, but there have been pushes from public health officials, um, from health communication scholars, from various people who um, think about medical mistrust a lot to try to A, remind that it's not just Tuskegee, people are concerned about present day things and the connections of sort of across systems. So, you know, if you live in an area where you don't have clean water or the government um, and sort of local officials haven't fixed other issues, that bleeds over. Like I haven't been able to trust you and sort of rely that you have my best interest in heart um, in these arenas. So why would I think that COVID-19 would be any different? Um, and I don't think there's been enough conversation about that aspect. Medical mistrust gets brought up. Um, and I also suspect that what's happening with COVID um, is in some ways a different type of medical mistrust, or at least parts of it are. I think we often use medical mistrust as this huge umbrella term, um, but that can mean very different things. It can mean be about a specific physician. It can be about physicians in general. It can be about the healthcare system. It can be about hospitals. Um, and so there's a lot of nuance. And from a health communication perspective, we have to understand the underlying beliefs. So even if you ask someone you know, items about being mistrustful. You could have people who all rate the same on sort of a measure of quote unquote medical mistrust, but it doesn't mean that how they arrive to that mistrust is the same. Um, the underlying beliefs can differ and that matters for what you need to target and what concerns to discuss um, to help people feel more comfortable and confident, particularly when it comes to things like um, COVID-19. I collected some data with a um, graduate student here at UW-Madison in the School of Pharmacy. Um, and it's not a huge sample, but looking at Black and white Americans, it seems like A, they're thinking about things like um, vaccine necessity, concerns, um, and medical mistrust potentially differently because when we tried to treat it as one sample and did the analysis, the analysis told us we couldn't treat it as one sample, that the two subsamples were thinking about these constructs differently. Um, and some of the relationships looked different. For instance, it looked like the relationship between um, vaccine concerns, so concerns about the safety of the vaccine, um, actually had a more negative relationship for the white sample than the black sample. But what we hear is always about, you know, black communities are incredibly mistrustful. They have all these concerns. We need to address them. And it's like, okay, but what we have to actually know what those concerns are and can't assume that we know what they are and what they're based on. So another topic we definitely want to dive into in our panel um, is how digital inequalities and unequal access to reliable information um, have been driving forces and putting socially and economically disadvantaged people at greater risk to COVID. Um, on the flip side, how might strategies rooted in things like community partnerships and person-to-person -person work? So for example, in Santa Barbara, there's been talk of bringing mobile vaccine clinics to at-risk communities. How might those strategies work to combat that digital divide? 
so I'm super excited to hear that there is going to be um, a move towards in their efforts being made to do sort of mobile vaccine clinics. Um, I think COVID-19 has been a very interesting circumstance because like there, we already know that there are communication inequalities that even if you flood the information with flood a system with information, who gets that information differs and looks differently. Um, and I don't know if we've always done a great job of keeping in mind that because of COVID-19, it means more people have been isolated, more people have been staying at home. Um, they're not having some of the typical interactions they might would have under other circumstances. And so that also means that their networks that have been fractured or might be um, not as easily um, activated in terms of information networks. Um, and so because of that, we already have sort of inequalities generally, and then COVID, I think, has probably amplified that because before it could be that even if you hadn't heard about where to get um, a vaccine, if it was a vax, if the sort of health concern was such that you could still go to work, ride a bus, interact with people, it could be that, you know, the person in the cubicle over overhears your conversation and says, oh, hey, I actually heard that there's a clinic at this location. There weren't wait times. Here's how you get access to that. And so even some of those informal networks that I think we often relied on weren't there because of COVID-19 and what that meant for our interactions um, with other people. And so because of that, I think there's an increased need to sort of meet people where they are. Um, and there's also been a ton of conversation about all these things that have been chalked up to vaccine hesitancy for communities of color, that communities of color aren't actually that hesitant necessarily, that there's still all these barriers in place to actually accessing it. It's the fact that so many um, means in terms of making appointments were online. That assumes that people have constant access to internet and can navigate the sites and make appointments. Um, and those are sort of pretty large assumptions um, to make. Um, and so I'm happy that now there's more move towards sort of community organization um, and more grassroots efforts and trying to meet people where they are, whether that be mobile clinics or you know going through apartment complexes um, and those sorts of things so that people actually can access information. And then this is kind of a final umbrella question for you um, that you've definitely already touched on, but interpret it as you will. Um, how can we improve communication, increase transparency with those who have been previously wronged by the healthcare system, both within the context of COVID and moving forward? Yeah, I think that a lot of it is about transparency. I think there have to be genuine efforts to um, interact with communities and build relationships and build trust. Trust is something that comes over time and is shown through actions. It's really easy to say like, oh, don't be mistrustful. Like, you know, things like Tuskegee were such a long time ago. Like we're here for you. Like, okay, that's great. But what are communities actually seeing? What evidence can you show that you are making efforts to make sure that 
care is equitable, that there's access, um, that you're alleviating the barriers that have um, typically been in place um, that have kept communities um, from accessing some of these things. So I think A is like not treating it as a one shot sort of opportunity. It requires built relationships over time. Um, I think it was sad to see in some respects, like when COVID-19 first hit, like we knew there was gonna be a point at which vaccines would be available and we were gonna want people to be vaccinated. And so it's sort of like, okay, the partnerships with communities should have started, I mean, they really should have started prior to COVID, but we know that that was clearly not happening. Um, but at that point, there should have been efforts to build those partnerships um, with communities. So I think it's um, being transparent. It's realizing that this is a sort of continual process and requires um, showing up and showing um, that there's a reason for communities um, to put sort of be vulnerable and put themselves in um, the hands of these entities um, and also not shirking away from, you know, being clear about what has happened in the past and why these things have happened. So, um, you know, I don't think that ignoring that medical racism has happened, that it's built into even the algorithms and some of the equations that are used. Like, I think we have to be upfront about that. Some of the experimental work that I was talking about earlier suggests that by hiding that, you make it worse because at this point, communities know what has been happening, um, has been happening. And so by hiding it, it makes people question, well, why aren't you willing to talk about this? And why are you hiding it? Which, you know, is counterproductive um, if you are trying to build trust with communities. Well, thank you so much again, Professor Williamson, for joining me. And we're really looking forward to having you on our panel on Tuesday, May 18th at 4 p.m. Thank you.